0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Crack open a fortune cookie, it's empty. Other times you crack it open, you read that fortune, you're like, yeah, that's great. Let's move on to the next. And sometimes you wonder if it's something that appeals to you, if it really is gonna matter. And we just don't know in an uncertain world. So. What I focused on in this book is, yes, there is all that uncertainty out there. And that's why this book is important is one to acknowledge that it exists in lots of forms and everybody is going to encounter it ongoing. It's not like we encounter one example of uncertainty like COVID. We get a shot, uh, you know, we reach herd immunity and suddenly we're all good. No, it's layers of uncertainty on top of one another, interacting with one another. So the question then really becomes, you know, it's great to get that perspective. It's also a little frightening when you, when you sense the greater reality of this uncertainty. So what the hell do you do?
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
2: Larry, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh, it's always a pleasure and a privilege, Srini. I thank you very much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. You know, I
2: um, have you here back for a second time. And as I've said a thousand times, anytime we have somebody back for a second time, it says a lot about their first appearance. Um, you have you. a new, new book out, Rebel Leadership, all of which we will get into. But as you know from previous experience, we're not going to start there. Um, so, given the subject matter of this book, I thought where we'd start is me asking you what social group you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up with your life and the choices that you've made throughout your career?
1: What an interesting question. So I'll, I'll answer it in what would, <laughs> you'll, you'll recognize this as typical of me as well in both a direct and an indirect way. I, I think if I had to pick from the, the typical categories, um, sports were always really important, not just to me individually, because I, I love them and I love what they tested about me and I love the interactions, but my parents believed that they were important, that it was, it was important to, um, test that side of you, but also to interact with people in, in that, that environment. So that was one. The, the second group, though, related to it was I, I cared about school and I loved to learn. And so I got put often in, I'll call it the, the smarties group, the, the intellectual kids who were striving for, for something bigger than just, you know, finishing the, the homework assignment. And then the third group were the outliers. And part of the reason I was part of that latter group, and it really influenced everything else, was even though I grew up primarily in the in the desert Southwest, we moved a lot. So we, we would move away from there, we would move back, and we moved to different places around the country. And I would come in and not automatically be a part of those social groups some of which you know had developed in elementary school and up through middle school and high school i went to 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 two different elementary schools two different middle schools two different high schools each in you know different geographies and so in some ways i wasn't a part of any of those social groups i always came in as an outlier i always felt attracted to and, and, uh, felt camaraderie with others who were outliers for different reasons. Um, and I loved what I found in the sports group or with the Smarties, but I never, I never really felt myself to be, um, cliquish in those groups. They, they satisfied something in me, but not everything in me. And so really those three things in combination were my biggest influences as it related to social groups growing up, and and I'm and I'm thinking you know in the K through 12 range.
2: Yeah. What uh, What sports did you play? Just out of curiosity. Ha.
1: Yeah. So uh, early on, I was a swimmer and a and a tennis player, and uh, loved both of those until one day in little old Tucson, Arizona there was an opportunity to meet this guy that most people you know in the United States at least had not heard of at that time and his name was was one word name uh pele and I, I was that was really my first introduction to soccer it was either my first or second season of you know doing it recreationally but but to be perfectly honest kids and parents and and the the parents that became coaches In those days, they didn't know what soccer was, and then Pele arrived, and he was part of this grand tour of the United States in those days to try to introduce kids to soccer. And frankly, it was his passion for us, and not so much his passion for the game, that really drew me in. And so uh, for most of my years, I was a soccer player, and to stay in shape for soccer, I was a cross-country runner. Hmm.
2: So... (laughs) one, uh, you know, part of the reason I love the fact that we're talking about sports and I didn't play high school sports and that's one of my regrets, even though I was a terrible athlete, I Mm. feel like every single person I've ever talked to who played a high school sport um, says it was an incredibly formative experience. Ryan Holiday was a cross country runner too. And, um, you know, I wonder, especially because, you know, we're going to be talking about leadership. What are the lessons in leadership that you took from the soccer field that you've later found ended up being valuable in your life?
1: Boy, what a what a terrific question! And it's and it's interesting because I'll I'll answer in terms of my own experience. But then I I have two kids who are, for all intents and purposes, grown. um, One who's about to turn nineteen, and one who's twenty two. And so I've I've seen it from that side too, from the, the parental side. But in in my own experience, particularly in soccer, which is a team sport, it was that lesson that if you can't figure out how to lead yourself first, whatever that means, if you can't figure out what you want out of the game, if you don't understand why you're playing and not just because your parents are encouraging you to, um, if you don't have a sense of where you fit on that field, it's not much fun. And in addition to that, what you kind of learn over time is that the more you have a sense of how to lead yourself, the better you are in being a contributor To the rest of the group, whether that's, you know, the, the captain of the team or it's just one of the players out there. (laughs) Soccer is one of those games where the field of play is constantly moving. There, there aren't uh, the same kind of lines that you have in football. There aren't the bases like you have in baseball that in at least for long periods of the game, keep you contained. People are constantly moving around the field. And so to, to be an effective team, you have to know how to constantly adapt and recalculate. And if you don't have your own internal compass, you're you're never going to be really good at that. I don't care what your skill set is. I don't care what you can do with the ball, with your feet, how many goals you think you can score. It ultimately comes back to that integration uh, across the, the entire culture of leadership on the team. And I, I think that was one of my earliest exposures. Both of my kids played lots of sports growing up. But when they hit high school, they participated in crew, in rowing. And to watch the lessons that they learned there, not, not just the ones that I, I talked about about this team interaction. Both of them participated in, in rowing where you have eight rowers and you have a coxswain. If all those people don't lead in their own way within that boat, the boat doesn't go very far very fast. And there are no elite athletes in a crew boat. They're only elite teams. And to watch them learn that lesson, to watch them learn how hard that can be sometimes, it's easy to talk about how we should lead. It's really hard to figure out how to do it and then to continue to recalculate how to do it. And that's exactly what crew was for them. And it taught them how to grow up in a lot of ways, but also gave them a sense of their own compass of where they wanted to go and have been going now in college and one just beyond. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, we're looking at this in retrospect and I'm wondering, when we talk about this now, is this something that you only recognize in retrospect or is it sort of like a Mr. Miyagi
1: lesson that you didn't quite realize you were getting at the time? I think it's exactly that. I, I I don't recall ever... Uh, consciously concluding that, you know, this is the lesson I was learning out of it or that it was a leadership lesson or that I even cared about it being that kind of lesson. Um, I remember having a a, a coach, his name was Bill Mosier. And, you know, just like many youth coaches, he was a, a, a volunteer. But I remember how he would teach us the skills of the game and he would teach us how to put plays together but what he really emphasized was that, you know, that old Wayne Gretzky quote, what makes a, a, a good player is is being where the puck is. What makes a great player is anticipating where it's going to go next. And that's what Bill Mosier was all about, was how do you anticipate where you're going to go next? Well, the ability to do that ties back to all those things that in retrospect, I realized I learned about individually, how do you... you tap that leadership capability that I believe everybody has. And collectively, how do you make it most effective as a team? Yeah. Um, You mentioned that you moved around
2: a lot, which I can relate to. And I wonder, this is something that is just out of personal morbid curiosity. How did moving around so much as a child affect your ability to form friendships later on in adult life? Or what impact did it have on your friendships in adult life?
1: I think it's had a lot of impact. You know, you <clears throat> going back to that first group you asked me of what were my school social groups. I was as I said I was never really part of the, the the clique of any particular social group and and part of that was I was the newcomer and and it was well established and it wasn't that they didn't take new members as it were. It's just that you were never going to have that depth of association that, um, that they had, and you were never going to be able to rise to that sense of loyalty that they wanted to extract from you. You know, it's as much as people in a group can be different. My experience with clicks is we want everybody to be a heavy percentage of the same. And so, because I always came in as an outsider, because we moved a lot and I had to make new friends and be in new groups, what, um, bothered me as a kid, but ultimately attracted me as adult, was that refresh, that getting to meet new people and learn new things all the time. And it has absolutely influenced my social groups as an adult, where, you know, when I find myself in a group that's drifting heavily towards sameness, um, they're really not interested in learning more about one another or bringing what they learn uh, elsewhere to the group so the group can learn new things. I, I find myself bored I, and, and it doesn't mean that I completely abandon that group, but I'm typically friends with people in many different groups. And sometimes that, you know, that works most of the time it works to my advantage and sometimes it doesn't. But I think it's a direct extract of having had to move around a lot and. And what your motivation is for making new friends. It's not like I had any particular skill for it. I just had an interest in learning about other people and what they knew. And that's what tended yeah. to help me make friends growing up. And it certainly has influenced what I do professionally.
2: Yeah. Well, my, I mean, I can really, I always jokingly say, I don't think it's coincidence that I chose to build a career out of something that ensures I never stop meeting new people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well same i mean that's that's been very much the basis of my work and not not just in the in the consulting but you know when i when i write a book it it's been a constant component that i go out and talk to people sometimes it's a formal interview sometimes it's an informal interview but as much as i read as much as i look at you know research in a particular area i might be writing about I want to make it real. I want to know what's happening in, in not just in theory, but in practice. And I want to hear where um, people call bullshit on what I'm taking from the knowledge that I'm gaining. Uh, people see something different from the than the patterns that I'm seeing. So it's become a very integral part of how I work as well. And and you know, frankly, as as we've talked about before, keeps things fresh. It it not only makes you want to continue to do what you're doing that you love. It reminds you why. And part of the why for me is what can I discover in it that's new? And if I can put that combination together, I'm probably going to hang with something a very long time. And if I can't, I'm probably going to be looking for something new pretty quick.
3: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection...
2: So <clears throat> one last question before we get into the book, you mentioned that you have kids and this is something I was curious about when I'm talking to creatives and, and entrepreneurs and people who have found themselves on an unconventional path. How has your own path uh, informed the career advice that you're giving to your children?
1: Mm. So the first thing is I don't give my children career advice, <laughs> Beautiful, um, I love but I, what my wife and I have done together and it. And I think this is really important. It, we, my wife and I have a lot of things in common, but we're very different in many ways. And our style and approach is is very different. But as a team, what we've always tried to expose our kids to is that that love for exploring and learning, which I which I referenced earlier. And part of that is discovering what path you want to journey down. So Um, you know, my, I I say this with all, all the privilege that came with it, that I just am am humbled by my wife and I went to, to some pretty well-known schools and they have a certain cachet attached to them. And one of the things I was worried about is my kids, especially entered school. And then as they made their way along, thought about college was I wanted them to find a place that fit them. Uh, by the time they, they got to college, but even as they were going along, what, what kinds of things were they interested in? What did they get involved in? What did they want to explore? And I didn't want that to be shadowed by what I had done. And my wife didn't want that to be shadowed by what she had done. So the emphasis was always more on how do you teach kids to, to inquire? How do you teach them to ask, ask questions? How do you teach them that questions really should be a habit. It's not just to get the answer. It's about the constant inquiry. And we played with that in a lot of different ways so that they could sort out for themselves what they wanted to do, what they wanted their path in life to be, which, you know, yes, the career is in there. And yes, it it defines a lot of hours they'll spend in time, but my God, it's so much bigger than that. And I know personally, what I tried to pass on to my kids within that learning were lessons that my parents instilled in me, never, never quite by saying the words um But, really, by showing me the example, and with my mother, it was be you and be you boldly, whatever that means. she never defined it for me or for my brother, and with my dad, it was always trust your gut. <clears throat> he believed in that in in every sense, not that you know you don't need to inform yourself sometimes, not that you don't seek advice and so on, but ultimately, if you can't trust your gut, then you've got an unsteady boat that you're you're charting in the new waters
2: yeah well, I mean you brought up this idea of schools with cachet. I mean, I can relate to that having been a Berkeley undergrad, uh, which technically qualifies as an elite school, even though I got a piss-poor GPA, so I don't necessarily consider that an impressive credential. Uh, But what I wonder, you know, as a parent, why do you think we, particularly here in the United States, have placed so much emphasis on the sort of, you know, prestige that comes with going to certain universities? And we put ourselves in this college admission scandal, for God's sakes.
1: Yeah, it's <clears throat> so I'll tell you a story that that I think gets right to the heart of that. So um, I I went to school just across the bay from you. I was I was at Stanford. undergrad, <laughs> <laughs> And we we won't dig into that rivalry and all the fun that goes with it. But well, for what it's worth, in the five years that I was at
2: Berkeley, because I was a super senior, we never won a single big game.
1: Although apparently we kicked your ass the years after <laughs> well i i don't know which zone of of time i was in relative to you but in the in the years we were there there were very few football games we won at all so <laughs> um, but anyway years later i i think it was you know like a a 15th reunion or something like that and and I had my young daughter with me i think she was probably four at the time <clears throat> we were walking around campus i was showing her different places we were going into different buildings and i wanted to take her in to one of the lecture halls that I spent a lot of time in. One of my uh, undergraduate focuses was art history, um, even though I took a very different path in life. Anyway, we stumble into this lecture hall, and there's a session going on around you know, the reunion. And it is the dean of admissions who had been the dean of admissions for 25 years. Mm-hmm. My year was the last year he admitted. And he was coming back, and they were interviewing him. He was a much beloved character. And one of the questions that the interviewer asked him was, how do you feel about college rankings? What's the best thing and what's the worst thing that they have done to the impression of college? Meaning um, how, you, how you see a school, why you choose it in the first place, why, why it matters to go there. Or on the internal side, how does the school see itself? What does it want to be? What does it think it exists to do? And he said that the worst thing about college rankings was making people believe that there were only certain schools that were worthy, because it translates into there are only certain schools that are worthy of you as a person and you as a student. And what he said made him happiest in life was when he would, after all those 25 years of admitting thousands of students, when he would bump into one of them and they'd say, oh, Dean Fred, uh, I, I can't wait to tell you about what I've been up to. And he would say, well, tell me about your kids. If, you, if, you, if they had kids, what have they done in life? And if they're college age, where did they go? And his happiest moments were when they would say, oh, you know, Janie went to community college for the last two years and she decided that she wanted to take this artistic path in life. Or this person went to, you know, the, the, the state university, the, the little local uh, arm of that and it is a perfect fit for them they've never been happier and so to him it was all about making that match between who you were as a person and what is the environment that's going to allow you to release as much of that as possible to explore it freely and unencumbered that's what really mm-hmm. makes a great school and so <clears throat> i've never forgotten that lesson and you know we were talking about kids and the lessons that you you teach them we um always talked about college as though it was an inevitable in our household, one, because we were lucky enough that we could afford to help our kids go, but two, because we felt it was really important for them to get away from us, to get away from the overstructure and influence that they they get these days in most public uh, high schools and, and below, And that was the lesson that went alongside that. Yes, college, but the college that's right for you. And when you take that back to that lesson of inquiry and and always asking questions to explore what you want, you marry those two together. And hopefully a kid not only finds the school that's the right fit for them, but is lucky enough to go there and become something greater than what they were before they started. That's how we've always looked at it. Beautiful. Well, I think that
2: makes a a perfect segue to actually getting into the concepts in the book. So why this book
1: and why now? Wow. Well, let me answer that at two levels. So personally, I had written two books prior to this. And when I started down the path of this book, I really didn't know I was starting down the path to this book. I I just finished one. Book writing, as you know, is hard work. So the decision really wasn't a no-brainer. Um, it had to matter, I guess is the way I would put it, I, as, as any good work, any good project I think does. There were two things that ultimately compelled me to write this book. One was that as much as I was seeing people out there, you know, I work a lot with entrepreneurs and creatives, much, much as you do. And as much as I was seeing people out there who were working hard to do good things, they were forgetting the context in which they were doing them. And what I meant by that is, it's not just COVID that has made this world uncertain. The world has become increasingly more and more uncertain year after year after year for the entire first 20 years of this new century. And I think we've long instilled a habit of thinking of things in a way that, that once you learn the rules, once you learn the, the plan that you're supposed to execute, that you can just kind of follow along your merry way, that there's a status quo you can arrive at, a, a sameness that you can arrive at. And as long as you know it and as long as you execute on, along those lines, there's an implication that things are going to be fine. But that's not the wor- way the world has ever worked. And that certainly is not the way the world has worked in the last 20 years. You know, we used to think of uncertainty as as the kind of thing that came periodically or episodically. It, it, it's, a, it's a reality of day-to-day life, and it's happening in big ways. And so the, the lack of thinking about whatever somebody was setting out to do in that greater context, rather than just having a good idea, thinking about how do you get a good idea to stick, or how do you get a good idea to play? Or how do you attract other people to help you build on that idea when the world is constantly moving? How do you do that? Because that's very different than the lessons we typically get, not just in school, but when we arrive on, you know, at our first job, when we're trained into that, even the messages we get from media, find (laughs) the formula, get good at it, you will have good results. So that was one of the big drivers for me. And the second big driver uh, for this book right now was. I'd written two previous books, as I mentioned. One was on creativity, and the other was on the entrepreneurial mindset. And in each of those books, I made a lot of references to leadership as a vital component, but I hadn't put it center stage. And to me, this question of how do we deal in these deeply uncertain times, how do we thrive in them, as, as the subtitle of my book points to, had everything to do with leadership, not just of those who hold the title of leader, but of how we tap that capacity within us, much like how do we go about tapping the capacity for creativity that's within all of us? So those two things were the big drivers. And frankly, this book was in my thoughts and in the works, uh, two years prior to COVID. I just felt this was so important. But, you know, in this last year and a half of, of pandemic, I think it's brought home, brought to everyone's shore, as I like to say that this idea of we don't live in a, in a normal, we live in a new abnormal is real and real for everybody, no matter what version of that you get. Yeah. Well,
2: so you, you, you talked about uncertainty and, you know, we basically prior, we're just talking about college and, and life paths in an uncertain world. Why do you think that we have so many prescriptive and predetermined life paths handed to us?
1: I think it's the, you know, so one of the things I wrote about in, in my book on creativity, The Language of Man was about, um, some of the studies that have been done on multiple intelligences. So one of the people I interviewed for that book was Howard Gardner, who's the, the father of that concept that rather than just having a, an IQ score, uh, that if, if if it's strong, defines your intelligence. And if it's weak, you know, says that somehow you're, you're not intelligent. He believes that there are these multiple intelligences out there and, and they're, you know, related to how you perceive things physically, the way that you consume information. Are you, you know, if, if you think about knowledge, are you a reader? Are you really more a numbers person? The way that you interact with other people, there's this whole range that contributes to what our intelligence is out there. And so it's, it's leaning into that, that bigger thought of, um, how do we see and perceive the world that really was, was, was the driver behind that for me. I, 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 and I'm not sure that that answers your, your question, Srini. So if, if there's another angle or, or take on it that you were headed for, please Please guide
2: no, me. I, I mean, I, I think you do. I mean, part of it was, you know, I tend to ask questions that have no actual answers. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Me too. Um, but, you know, I, I think that my own experience in life has just shown me that life plans are basically like fortune cookies. You have no idea what you're going to get until you crack it open and it never turns out anything like you think it's going to.
1: Yep. Yep. I think that's absolutely right. So if you think about that, you know, this that's a way that we could talk about this uncertainty It's like a fortune cookie. First of all, you have no idea what's going to be written inside when you crack it open and you read your little message you don't know if your lucky numbers on the back are, are worth anything or they're just randomly generated right but it that is a nice simple um, uh, non-threatening parallel to life right now in an uncertain world. It's a bit like a fortune cookie. First of all sometimes you know when you crack open a fortune cookie it's empty. Other times you crack it open, you read that fortune, you're like, yeah, that's great. Let's move on to the next. And sometimes you wonder if it's something that appeals to you, if it really is going to matter. And we just, we don't know for certain in an uncertain world. So what I focused on in this book is, yes, there is all that uncertainty out there. And that's why this book is important, is one, to acknowledge that it exists in lots of forms and everybody is going to encounter it ongoing. It's not like we encounter one example of, of uncertainty like COVID. We get a shot. Uh, you know, we reach huge herd immunity and suddenly we're all good. No, it's layers of uncertainty on top of one another, interacting with one another. So the question then really becomes, you know, it's great to get that perspective. It's also a little frightening when you When you sense the greater reality of this uncertainty, so what the hell do you do and This book was really about how do you thrive in such times and importantly, how are leaders and leading organizations of all types thriving in the last twenty years because some are, and there's there's nothing about the uh markets that they serve that that you know they have in common to say, oh, because they're in that industry that you know that they can approach it this way, and that's their that's their secret to success. There's nothing about their backgrounds that would indicate, you know, a certain person is is better predisposed to success. There appears to be nothing until you start to look at these patterns across how they perceive uncertainty and how they embrace uncertainty. And that's really the key here is what can you point to What can you hang on to? What can you build from no matter what kind of uncertainty there is? And that's really what this book emphasizes is um, these patterns that exist across these leaders and across these organizations that point to those things that you can count on to guide you as you as you try to adapt.
3: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
2: Well, one of the things you say early in the book is the truth is there is no more normal. Normal implies an environment that is typical or acts in predictable ways. Today, regardless of sector, role, or goal, that doesn't describe anyone's world. Abnormal is our new normal. And mm-hmm. Brian Holiday actually had a, a medium article titled "Stop Waiting for Things to Go Back to Normal," and he said you know the, the pandemic is just one example of things that are like this that have happened throughout history. Uh, in a world where abnormal is our new normal, you mentioned. Perception of uncertainty and embracing it. How does somebody change their perception of uncertainty and embrace it?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of like you 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 mentioned earlier that you you ask those questions often where there is no answer. I, <laughs> I I I think I and and this isn't one of those questions so much as to say we tend to think about uncertainty as something that when it first arrives might feel very overwhelming and very threatening, uh, even have risks associated with it. But over time, we have an expectation that any kind of uncertainty, we can get our minds around. And then pretty soon we can get our arms around it. And from there, we can create some kind of path that creates a new normal, a new status quo. And so, it, you know, the, the World Economic Forum talked about this habit that we have, not just in the US, but internationally of wanting to look at uncertainty as something we can get control over and maintain control over. And I think that's a, a natural human inclination. I mean, as much as we need uncertainty, and I'm a big believer that we do, we also don't want it to constantly dip, disrupt our lives. We'd love to have this perfect balance, but if we can't get that, our initial leaning is well, how do we get total control over it? And when the World Economic Forum studied this, they do a, an, an annual global risk report where they ask leaders, you know, what's out there that's threatening you and what are you doing about it? And one of the dis- distinctions they made was that. That kind of risk, that way we perceive uncertainty as something we can get control over and, and return to a status quo, is what they call conventional risk. Comes periodically rather than all the time. It is something we can understand. It is something we can we can get control over. But what's emerging in the last twenty years, and this is something that that uh, a couple of years the the WEF's report really emphasized, is what they call complex risk. So that means there's not just risk at the individual level or the group level or the company level or even the societal level or even the country level. There's risk at all those levels. And for the very first time in modern history, those risks are intertwining with one another, often in ways that we can't see, which means that, you know, hard reality here, that really isn't an uncertainty that we can control long term we can only expect that it's going to continue and learn how to navigate within it. And I think that's the big difference maker. But as much as that has has characterized the kind of uncertainty we've seen in the last 20 years, that doesn't mean all the ways, all the institutions and the places we learn and the things we're taught there have caught up with that. Certainly that it hasn't changed how uh, our public school education, at least K through twelve, it comes to us. We're taught formulaic ways to learn. We're taught how to get an A and how to get a B, and what criteria do we need to to meet to to uh, be promoted, as they say, from elementary school or middle school, or to graduate from high school? How how do we meet that criteria? And most of that criteria is knowledge that we're we're being taught, not method, not inquiry, not critical thinking, not how to navigate uncertainty. So. Even if we embrace this idea that there's complex risk out there and it's a lot tougher to get your arms around it and control it in any permanent way, we still not only lack those skills for how to navigate an uncertainty, which by the way, we have inside us, we just don't practice them, but we're not taught those things formally. And in addition to that, we continue to be taught that all you have to do is understand the uncertainty and get your arms around it and you can move on. And that just simply isn't true anymore.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, later on, you go on to say that of the top five skills leaders said were most important in an unpredictable world. There are three clearly overlapping creativity, problem solving and adaptability. How we show up, how we do great work, how we create and innovate and how we create the internal environment and culture in which we do those things all has to do with our ability to keep on adapting as the landscape continues to change. So adaptability in particular is what intrigues me most uh, about what you said here. And what I wonder is that capacity for adaptability, having interviewed such a wide range of people, including somebody like Justine Musk, Elon Musk's ex-wife, do you think adaptability is something that people have to varying degrees? And can they increase the degree to which they're capable of adapting to Mm. uncertain circumstances?
1: Yes. So let's go in reverse. Can they increase the degree to which they're able to adapt? Absolutely. Because much as i was just describing in in the last discussion about un- uncertainty um we think the same way about adaptability we think of it as something that's periodic or episodic we yeah we have to do it now and then we grumble about it but you know we 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 adapt and then we adapt to something we can we can call predictable um this we're talking about adaptability in a quite different sense if you look at the the current environment the, you know the current environment is is Sometimes described as a VUCA world, an acronym that stands for a world that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous VUCA. But if you talk to people who really think about that idea, they make the important distinction to say it's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous all the time. So adaptability isn't this this skill that you learn in one form and that you use now and then. you have to practice it. And when you practice it, guess what? You get better at it. However, let's go back to the the first part of your question. You know, it's it's more a matter of each of us has different skills for adaptation. And some of those skills are more or less relevant to different circumstances. So I don't think that you can make a declaration and say, XYZ person is... Uh, they were born more adaptable or that somehow their form of adaptability is greater than anybody else's. It's just different and it's either more or less practiced. And I think that's, that's the real difference when it comes to adaptability is if we think of it as this mindset rather than a skill, rather than a personality or, you know, an inborn trait, if we think of it as a mindset and, and in order to have any mindset work, you have to practice it then we start to understand what adaptability truly is. And within that, we start to understand how each of us individually can become more adaptable in our own form. And there's another really critical lesson that comes with that. Our adaptability doesn't work in every circumstance. And so in order to truly adapt and to truly thrive in an uncertain world, it's a team sport. We have to learn to do that in groups, whether it's a You know, a literal team like a project team or a sports team, or it's a, it's a company and across the entire employee base. If we're not thinking about adaptability as a mindset and as a skill, really as a strategic imperative of any group or team then we're likely to get undone by an uncertain world. And so that's that's really how I look at adaptability. But I think the norm when we look at adaptability is I got to learn the skill that allows me to adapt to this situation this one time, and then I can go back to normal until the next time I'm asked to adapt somewhere down the line. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think the reason that that, uh, you know, why I brought up that question is context matters a lot here, right? So if you've read any of the 50 cent books, you know, the one he did with Robert Greene, which is the 50th law and even hustle harder, you look at the circumstances in which he grew up in, in that context, adaptability becomes almost inherent compared to you and I who got to go to, you know, Stanford and Berkeley. That's you right. know, I would argue that 50 cents adaptability capability is probably a bit broader given, you know, the fact that he came from such adverse circumstances.
1: I, I think that's absolutely too, Srini. And so, you know, we, um, we haven't said out loud that the, the title of the new book, but the, the, the title is Rebel Leadership, How to Thrive in Uncertain Times. Rebel leadership is at its core about being conscious of context. Because if your environment is constantly changing, if it is some combination of volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, that means that context is moving. And if you don't understand where the context is in any point in time, how can you go about applying your skills? Well, how can you go about seeing where you need complementary skills to, to go along with yours, to, to work together with others? Because we don't all have that same experience. And in a moving world, we don't all have the complete reference point to understand the context of a world that's, that's constantly changing. I, I think, I think. If, if I had to summarize it, rebel leadership is about remembering context. And when you get within a, a group setting, which really is kind of an implied in some ways when we talk about leaders or leadership, there are three keys to what allow organizations and teams to, to develop adaptation as a, uh, not only a strategic priority, but a competitive advantage if we if we want to put it that way and those three things are co creation, inquiry, and diversity. So the first one, just to d- put a simple definition to each of them, is that nothing that we come up with as a solution to a problem, nothing that we innovate is ever an individual endeavor, you know even if you have an individual inventor or creator. They're building off somebody else's knowledge or something else that existed before, even if what existed before informed them that something could be better, that it could be done in a different way. Um, that that kind of co-creation is really the difference maker by, behind any of the significant innovations that that human beings have made for hundreds of years. The second thing, though, is inquiry. In order to co-create well, you need to be able to have this constant flow of of questions to understand what you know and what you don't know. Um, I'll put it this way. One of the people I interviewed for my last book... Uh, I interviewed nearly 70 MacArthur fellows and, and for listeners who don't know this, that they're winners of the quote unquote genius award for creativity. One of the people I interviewed was this woman by the name of Deborah Meyer, and she's an education reformer. So her job is either to come in and turn around schools, develop new school models, really start from the, from the ground up to say, how can, how can students learn better? How can teachers teach better? She, uh, builds every project that she puts together, every team that she brings together based on what she calls the five habits of the mind. And those five habits of the mind are, go figure, questions. It's about inquiry. And And the five habits are this. The first one is, how do we know what we know? They use that question not as a one-time thing to kick off a project or to introduce a new team member to the team. It's a constant check on what their assumptions are, something that's very, very powerful in a VUCA world. How do we know what we know? The second habit of the mind is asking the question, is there a pattern? Because as we look at our assumptions, we may see an outlier that says, hmm, something about those assumptions that we made, whatever it was based on is changing. But if it's an aberration, we should be a little less interested in that. If it starts to look like a pattern, we should be very interested in that. So she goes from the first habit of how do we know what we know, to is there a pattern, to always asking some form of the question, what if? Because after you've traveled through the first two, once you've looked at the assumptions you've made, some that you might've forgotten you made, once you have discovered whether or not there's a pattern out there, good or bad, you're kind of naturally in that creative space where you're going to ask some question of, what if we did things differently? What if we looked at solving the problem this way? What if we created this new thing in this way? The fourth habit of the mind is, is there another way of looking at it? And it's almost signaling you to repeat that mindset of inquiry to go back through the first three habits, because there's always another way of looking at it. And I think of it as the perfect habit for avoiding falling in love with your idea, which is one of the, the undoings of some of the most creative people I know. So she goes from how do we know what we know to is there a pattern, some form of the question of what if, is there another way? And then the most important question of all, who cares? So if you think about the way that Deborah uses this as a mindset, if you have an organization that is oriented or or wants to be oriented towards co-creation, right? One One of the first three keys of adaptability, they've got to ask powerful questions, but they've got to do it in an everyday way, meaning every person, every project, everything they do. And that's what the five habits of the mind is a great example of. And then that third key to adaptation of teams and organizations behind co-creation and inquiry is diversity, to realize that 50 Cent has a different perspective on the world, a different set of adaptation skills than you have or than I have. Even you and I have different adaptation skills from the backgrounds we came from, from even going to schools that, while near one another, were on opposite sides of a body of water and somehow just think very differently that diversity is only the beginning of the kind of diversity that you need to be good at adaptation in the same way that you need to be good at co-creation. And so I think it's organizations that start to think of it, uh, about adaptability in that way. How can we culturally embrace co-creation, inquiry, and diversity that really get good at it? Mm. Wow.
2: Well, let's talk about this idea of soul. Um, I think the section on soul is probably my favorite part of the book. You said that soul is about having a fuller sense of who you are. It's more textured, however. In rebel leadership, the soul is who you are in the context of what you do and how that ripples out and impacts others. So on one hand, soul is profoundly personal, but equally important, soul is the connective tissue linking you to others and helping them advance. How does that get expressed in somebody's work and in their leadership capabilities?
1: So I'll tell you a a little story that answers the question, and then I'll I'll tell you an interesting data point to to go with it. It's a story that I tell in the book. When I wrote my very first book, A Deliberate Pause, which was focused on entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurial mindset, I interviewed more than 220 people who uh, weren't just entrepreneurs but lived in the entrepreneurial universe. And I'd ask them all sorts of questions, but at the end of every conversation, I would ask Is there something that through all your ideas, through all the trials and tribulations, through all your success has been the difference maker for you, something that you always point back to? And whenever I would ask that question, which was often live talking to somebody in their office or in a coffee shop, but sometimes over the phone or over a a Skype call in in those days, a, a similar thing would happen. The first thing would be the look around. If I was sitting across the table from somebody, they would look around the room, even an empty room, as though they were just checking in on who might be listening, not because they had no intention of, of answering the question, actually because they had every intention of answering the question, but they wanted to see who might be listening, who might, be, who might learn from it, or that's the way I always perceive the look around. And then after the look around would come this lean in. They would literally physically lean into me and my question of, was there one difference maker for you throughout? And then they'd ask, do you want to know? Do you really want to know what that is? Because most people didn't ask them that question or they defined the answer in in asking the question. And when I would say yes, the overwhelming response back was one word, soul. And it was them that sense of identity. You know, we're all, we spend our whole lives trying to figure out who we are in all the dimensions, but just that sense of who they were in that moment, why the things that they did or were interested in mattered to them. And then, as you said, in the, especially in the context of rebel leadership, how that sense of identity connected to what they did and who they did it with and what, or who they did it for, what impact it made on others Soul was the difference maker. So when I heard that repeatedly over hundreds of people, to me, it's, it's a, it's a calling to, to wake up to that, that, you know, when we talk about soul, sometimes we think about it in a very narrow context, a religious context, or, you know, the way we typically talk about it, but really it is just that sense of yourself and that ongoing checking in with who am I in this moment and how does it connect to what I do? Because if you, you know, this is all the way back to the soccer field, right? If you don't have that sense of how to lead yourself, even, even if it's just leading yourself to an idea or a project or whatever it is, it's really hard to lead others to it or to engage them enough that they want to lead themselves alongside you. So so that's what I mean by soul in this context. That's why I think it's so important. I think that story really makes it resonate. But there's also some really hard research about this. And, and one of the people who's done research in this area is Adam Galinsky. He's at Columbia, the, the business school there. And as part of his research, he talks about this range of boldness, And the range of boldness is defined by two endpoints that are different for everyone. But one endpoint is going too far. I'm so bold that I just, I, I really go beyond to the point that I might lose that ability to impact others, to influence others, even to lead others. On the other extreme is not going far enough. And so the trick, he says, is to figure out where you are on that range. And the two most important things you have to figure out to know where you are in that range of boldness are, what do you know and believe about yourself? And what is it that others believe about you? What is their sense of you? And I think that really ties my definition of soul together. That first part, what do you know and believe about yourself, is that sense of identity. And that second part, What is it that others believe or sense about you is that part of how what you do connects to who you are, but also connects to how you impact others. Ah. Now, one
2: thing that really struck me here that you said is that whether we're conscious of, of it or not, we've built a mythology around the leader. Within it is the false notion that leadership itself is singular static, always emanating downward from one person or position. And that's largely been my experience of leadership because I, you know, went to jobs where I got fired and I have this sort of inherent distrust of all authority because of it. Um, but why did we create this mythology and how do we change that narrative about leadership?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the, the hero story has been around for millennia. Um, we like that idea that it, it, there might be this possibility of somebody being godlike. You know that a, a, a demigod. We 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 show respect for the gods we believe in out there, but we create this new category that puts us closer to them, somehow superior to normal everyday average human beings, and uh, you know, not quite as high as a god, but but somewhere in that heroic category. So I, it's part of uh, cultures across the world, not just Western culture, but but cultures across the world is this idea of mm-hmm. someone who can come in. And not only do those things that the rest of us feel like we can't, or are afraid to do, or feel it's just going to be too tough to do, but that they can do that ongoing. And we've built that into our belief around leaders, that that individual who holds that position sits in the corner office, to use a an old expression, especially in the world of COVID, where nobody's sitting in an office, um, that that person will not only have the answers, they'll have the great ideas, they'll be able to get us out of trouble, and they'll tell us what to do. And so I think within most people, we like that concept on both sides. We like that in our weaker moments, there will be somebody who will do that for us. And we like that when we think about our own life and our own interests and our own mastery of whatever it is we do, We'd like to think that we can be heroic in some ways in how we do it. So I think it's, it's not only, uh, core to the, the stories we tell ourselves uh, as, as societies. But it's also core to the way that we teach kids, the way that we train people, that there is a scale, that there is a hierarchy that you can rise within, that the expectation is that you will, that you are incentivized along that, whether it's getting an A or a B in school, or it's the bonus you get, or the the greater uh, vacation time you get. It's part of everything we do to think of the person who's in the lead as heroic, and to think of them as embodying, in total, everything it takes to lead, meaning leadership. We have a big equal sign between the word leader and leadership in, in most of our heads. And that just doesn't fly in two spaces. One is an uncertain world, and we've talked plenty about that. But two, and I think this is really fascinating, is it doesn't apply if what your goal is is peak performance ongoing. Because the research around peak performance, human pre- peak performance, whether it's in the you know, the work world or it's the artistic world or it's the sports world or whatever, requires two basic things. One is openness, openness in every sense, even to changing how you do what you do, even when it's working. And, and that leads to the second thing that's required is being okay with significant discomfort, Because when you are open, you know that you need to evolve over time and you've got to be open to the the discomforts that you encounter when you evolve. Well, guess what? If you want to be a peak performer, if you're willing to be open in that way, which means you're willing to adjust how you do, if you're willing to be greatly uncomfortable with those changes, including not being so good at things as you make a change, then you cannot be the leader in total. You need other people around you to take the baton and lead alongside you, whether you're co-leading in a project or you're, it's, it's the person who just, you know, happens to be better in you in that moment as you build toward your, towards your next day when you'll be great. And so I think that it's, it's built into everything we do. And yet we don't think about what we do being aimed at what we want. And most of us, no matter what we do is want some degree of peak performance. And peak performance means you can't be the hero all the time.
2: Hmm. Well, so there's one final quote, and I think you, you included this at the end of the book, which I think would be a perfect place to wrap up. You say, we tell our tales, seeking perfection tales of the individual superhuman with all the answers, all the right moves, and all the capacity to create and carry the load. We know in our hearts it isn't true, but we want so badly to believe in the myth that we're quite shocked when such leaders fall short and become human again. And I I think that struck me in particular because uh, a couple of months back, uh, I wrote an article on Medium about the psychology of building an audience for your work and how Mm. when you're a public figure in any capacity, you don't have the luxury of being 100% authentic ever um, because it could be detrimental to your career. I mean, I know this because there are things that I will say, you know, on a daily basis to my roommates that if I said them on air would be the end of my career. Yes. and so, you know, for leaders themselves, I mean, and, and people who we put on pedestals, uh, one, you know, how do you stop putting people on pedestals? Because I remember that was one of the things that my mentor, Greg Hartle, talked to me about when I I think probably two, three hundred interviews in. He noted he just kind of observed, he said, you tend to put your guests on pedestals. And mm-hmm. he said, I get it. It's hard because all these people are outliers who've accomplished incredible things. And it took me a long time to see myself as a peer to my guests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah, and so, and so yeah, I mean, just kind of an observation, but yeah, mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, this whole idea of putting people on pedestals and leaders falling, um and also, I mean you know the reality of being a public figure you know, and if you're a leader in any capacity, to some degree, you're a public figure
1: yeah so i uh, will I'll try to answer it in a, in a quick fashion here. A leader's real job is to create that environment in which everybody can rise to be a leader in their own right. That's really what leadership is all about at the end of the day. And so what that means is that you have to allow leadership to move. You aren't always the one carrying the torch. You aren't always the one sitting in front of the press at a press conference answering the questions because you aren't the leader, capital T-H-E, in every moment. So you have to allow leadership to move. You also have to allow it to become cultural to set an expectation that you believe everybody is, is a leader in one way or another, that you want people to rise to be that. You want them to experiment with what that means, including experiments that don't work out well, and that you reward them for doing so. And you want to show that you're willing to do that, not just in one moment, you know, before one press conference, but all the time. And so if you're a leader who thinks about that, in that way, that you're creating that environment, that you're allowing leadership to move, that you're building a culture, and that you're thinking about that existing over a long term, you go a long way to defeating this idea of the leader as hero because you're not trying to fill those shoes. You're doing everything that in some ways sounds like the opposite, but you're also doing things that make the whole situation, you included, more powerful in what you do.
2: Mm, wow. Wow. Um, well, I feel like I could talk to you about this all day. You know, there's so many layers to everything you've written about here, uh, but you know, in the interest of time, we will wrap with my final question. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Yeah, I love that you asked this this question, um, and I think what you just asked me about, you know, ties right to it. We, you read a quote from the book and you said, we all inherently know that there's, there's no such thing as this perpetual hero. There are heroes in moments, sure, but this perpetual hero or leader or whatever it is. But at the same time, we, we turn back and then expect to see that in what we do. Being unmistakable is doing what you know is right. It's that, that sense that those entrepreneurs I interviewed all those years ago have what I call, came to call the no choice factor, that they, they know their sense of soul enough. They look at the environment around them and they, they think with those habits of the mind that I described that, that Deb goes through and they see these opportunities because they see what they believe to be right. They believe they have no choice, but to pursue that. So I think it's that bravery to keep exploring, which is what I try to teach my kids along with my wife, that allows you to see what you know to be right and what you start to believe you have no choice but to do. And when you pursue that, that's what makes you unmistakable. Hmm. Amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for
2: taking the time to join us uh, and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Uh, Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the new book and everything else that you're up to?
1: Yeah, I appreciate your asking that as well. So the, the easiest way to find out about all of that is at my main website, which is lrspeaks.com. My initials, L-N-R, Larry Robertson, lrspeaks.com. And, and there you can find out about everything. And of course, uh, the book, you can learn more about it on Amazon too. Amazing.
2: And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe
0: even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages
2: are meant to be shared.